Much so better. anyway, but the, the the joke of it is is that at Evergreen, because it's kind of a free spirit school, uh, everyone dresses, has a green cap and gown, oh, but vey. about I think about 10% of the people dress up in their own outfits. Okay. So there's a guy in a penguin costume. <laughs> there's uh, women that are dolled up like they just, you know, one, one of they, they dubbed one of them Carmen Sandiego. Oh, she no. was wearing a white sundress and a big red hat. Oh, fantastic. And some girl in all just a just the brightest red tight fitting dress imaginable. And what was and uh, your son wearing? He was wearing a regular cap and gown. He took it he, they had a, him and his pal they had a million ideas they were going to do this they were going to just stand up and go sieg heil to one of the speakers. <laughs> <laughs> no way. <laughs> they didn't have they never got it. They couldn't Managed oh, it out. Managed pussies, it pussies. Oh, that but would they, have been awesome. And I don't think the, the speeches are as entertaining. I certainly have not heard of anyone doing a commencement speech in Germany and going seek Heil, but I would... Uh, <laughs> I'm sure they used to. <laughs> it's been a while, John. It's been a while. Episode 32, Freezing Works. This episode of Jay Won't Darts podcast, I'll talk about Freezing Works and New Zealand occupation basically an abattoir or slaughterhouse where the meat is frozen at the end and exported overseas. My intro is from No Agenda, episode 104. I'll start with a quote. The meat processing industry is in a constant state of change. These changes will continue to meet the requirements of the 21st century. The meat plant of 100 years hence will probably feature a high degree of automation, but this will be beyond our lifetime. If we focus upon the immediate future, the meat plant of the 21st century will probably incorporate many of the current trends or developments. Operating margins will remain small with the emphasis upon high productivity and enhanced revenue. We may see the rise of the mega plant linked with a national or international network of specialized added value operations. The international demand for meat and proteins is expected to grow. The challenge of the meat plant will be to meet this demand and produce a range of products to the exact requirements of the consumer. In the public eye, the freezing worker is one of the lowest status individuals in our society. A rough, irresponsible layabout who jeopardizes the economy for sheer greed and goes on strike at the drop of a hat. He earns high wages for very simple work. He's at a key point in the economy, responsible for processing one of our biggest export commodities. He can hold the country to ransom. So runs the popular myth. No one who has not seen what a freezing works is like, and the kind of jobs freezing workers do, is in a position to criticise. The industry carries mass production to its extreme. A freezing works is a giant disassembly line, along which carcasses and organs roll with a deadening inevitability, while the men scuttle to keep up. The machine is truly king. A butcher on the chain must carry out the same operation over and over again, day after day, until the season ends. Not for him the carpenter's pride in his skill, the watersider's variety of tasks, the shearer's sense of completing a meaningful job. Instead, endless, mindless, meaningless work, often standing in the same place all day, using a dangerously sharp knife, surrounded by hundreds of other men doing the same thing, and by the unedifying sights and smells, of freshly dismembered animals. Kura Inkson of Otago University, 1977. 
I had to look up the term watersider. It means a person who loads and unloads ships, a dock worker. In Southland, there are a few different freezing works, or the works as they're known colloquially. Freezing works are common in New Zealand rural areas. Farmers grow animals like cows, sheep and pigs. They are sent off to the works to be killed. When you go past a freezing works, they're quite large factory buildings, normally white and with lots of metal frames outside where the animals were kept. Trains or trucks will bring the animals in. They'll go through pens to be stunned and then murdered, or in freezing works terms, slaughtered inside. Their skin is removed for leather, bones are cut and pulled out, heads cut off, tongues cut out, their muscles sold as meat. Their organs are snatched out and thrown in stainless steel trays for inspection. If they are fit for sale, then they are sold for people to eat. Intestines are used as the casings for sausages. The intestines are like socks that get stuffed with low-grade meat to make sausages. I've read that glands are sold, some powdered up and sold overseas as a health thing, some such as testicles are probably bought in an attempt to spice up the bedroom. In old photos I've seen, you know, from the 1980s, hairy old men without gloves on are wringing out the intestines to make sausage casings. I assume that nowadays they have to wear gloves at least. The intestines go through a wringer and get washed. A little about the history of meat exported from New Zealand. Canning of meat was started in 1869 in New Zealand. Only the best meat was canned. In 1874, American cooled meat was sent to Britain. Natural ice kept the meat cool. The first ship to carry frozen meat from New Zealand to the United Kingdom was the Dunedin. The Dunedin used three tonnes of coal a day through a steam-powered refrigeration machine to cool the Dunedin's hold down to four degrees Celsius. The ship was rigged up for refrigeration in 1881, and its first journey from Omaru, New Zealand, that's in Otago, just north of Southland, left for London on the 15th of February, 1882. <laughs> it took the Dunedin 98 days to arrive on the 24th of May. It is difficult to realise that only about 35 years have elapsed since one of the most important of the world's industries was inaugurated resulting in the enormous and increasing trade of the present day. And yet the whole of this great industry, and to a very great extent the general prosperity and advancement of New Zealand, hangs on the slender piston rod of a refrigerating machine. M. A. Elliot, The Frozen Meat Industry of New Zealand, The New Zealand Journal of Science and Technology, May 1918. To do this episode, I read a book about the Alliance Freezing Works here in Southland, the book's name is A Cut Above. It came out in 1985, two years before I was born. A Cut Above was pretty difficult to read in parts. I read it every day at work, while the other people around me ate meat and I had my normal sandwiches. I'd ask questions to my dad about the book, since he worked at Alliance, and he'd casually explain things. There's lots of disgusting sounding jobs in sections of the freezing works. Places like the Foulmongery, which sound like something out of Lord of the Rings to me. It's where the wool was taken off sheep. I'll read a few passages that stood out to me. Just to explain this first quote, from the 1950s until the mid-1970s, New Zealand was a highly protected economy. We didn't have many imports. Among the capital developments was a new 2 million gallon water reservoir, which was almost completed. Some developments did not go smoothly. 
The company applied in 1972 for an import license to import a boiler from the UK for delivery in October 1973, Gordon explained. In December 1972, we were advised that an import license was declined and arrangements were made to have the boiler manufactured in New Zealand. The new boiler, which was to arrive in November 1973, actually arrived at the works in November 1974. It cost $25,000 more to make in New Zealand than it could be bought for in England and it took 12 months longer to make. It cost more to get it from Auckland to the works than it would have cost to have been freighted from England to Bluff. The delay resulted in the company hiring a large locomotive to augment the supply of steam. The cost of manufacture in New Zealand, plus the hire of the locomotive, will probably have cost the company an extra 100,000 New Zealand dollars by the time the boiler is commissioned. Okay, hearing that nowadays, with our free trade agreements and all, the idea that the government can deny the right of a company to import a crucial device from overseas, it sounds nuts to me. I asked some older friends, and they could agree that it was the right thing to do, New Zealand jobs and all, but I don't think it's a good plan to just ban imported goods and instead churn out inferior and more expensive local versions. Imagine if we could only have New Zealand made computers, for example, that had to have every part made in this country. We'd have to spend billions to reinvent every component and then we'd still be far behind. I don't think I'd want to swap my Apple iPhone for a kiwifruit brand Choice As phone, would you? This part of A Cut Above is about one of the many strikes and protests. But Alliance directors would have been blind if they had not seen up to 60 trucks a day heading out of the province, loaded with sheep and lambs for northern works. Southern farmers were simmering with discontent. Ironically, Alliance was performing well, and by the 13th of May, the total kill was only 45,327 behind the previous season. But the other works told the story. On that day, Matara was 331,940 behind, Ocean Beach 139,414, and Makariwa 103,058. It was going to be a late season, and feed was desperate. On the 9th of June, scores of farmers decided that they had had enough, and in a protest that would be deeply etched in the province's history, loaded emaciated old ewes onto vehicles and drove to the Lawnville stockyards. There, against the advice of Federated Farmers officials, they headed for Invercargill. Initially, the aim seemed only to let city people know what was happening to animals because of constant disruption to, in the freezing industry. But too many wanted the protest to be unforgettable. They stopped their vehicles in the city's main streets and unloaded the starving animals. Frightened sheep and flustered traffic officers and police made an astonishing sight that Friday afternoon as officials exhorted the angry farmers to get themselves and their stock out of the city. The farmers would, but in their own good time. As the animals headed for parks and any vegetation, farmers began a quiet round-up and drove the sheep to an empty place by the Invercargill Youth Institution Bridge. Then, while cameras clicked and television recorded it all in deathly colour, a silent slaughter began. Blood ran down hastily dug channels. Until then, farmers and meat industry strikes had seemed abstract events. Southland farmers drove home to all in New Zealand exactly what they had meant. I couldn't believe what happened when I read the book. The farmers were angry that the freezing works were overloaded, 
They couldn't deal with extra sheep at the time, so the farmers were being forced to hold on to their animals for longer than they wanted. The farmers went crazy in my opinion, and brought the animals right into Invercargill City from their farms and set them free in the main streets. I can't imagine what that must have been like to see. Scared sheep were running about on busy roads. I guess the farmers would have been having a great time laughing as police struggled to control the animals that must have been running in front of cars and in every direction. The farmers managed to get the sheep under control. They took them somewhere else close to the Invercargill prison. They dug ruts in the ground for blood to flow through and started killing sheep in public out in front of TV crews. That's horrible. The animals were made about as scared as possible, running free on city roads, having lived on farms all their lives. The police couldn't deal with it. It would be scary for drivers not wanting to hit an animal. All while the farmers would have been enjoying themselves. Then, to start killing the animals in public, they show no respect at all for the lives of the sheep. They wanted to protest by driving into Invercargill, setting them off on the streets. So they did it. They want to kill the sheep, so they get them back, take them to another public place, and kill them out in the open, on camera, just to get attention. And what was their complaint? That they had to wait for the freezing works to kill their animals, and they couldn't be bothered having these poor sheep kept alive that long. One more section from a cut above. Continued industrial stoppages in the freezing industry had not escaped the notice of the new national government, which had been elected to office on promises of being tough with irresponsible unions. Late in 1976, it was to demonstrate some theoretical muscle when it introduced the Industrial Relations Amendment No. 3 Act. The Act obliged those in the industry to give three days' notice of industrial action, and they faced fines of up to $150 if they did not kill out stock, either in a works or in transit before going on strike. The legislation was an abysmal failure. From one end of the country to the other, the provisions of the Act were ignored. A chorus of farmer protest grew. The Alliance Company did not escape. In February 1977, saw a foolish stoppage that made a mockery of law and the industrial relations in general. On the 8th of February, Slaughterman demanded that security in their dining room be improved, so a door leading from the amenities was locked. During the night, the lock was removed, and when some workers other than butchers were found in the dining room the next day, the butchers had a meeting and went home. A meeting was held the next day with union officials, and an agreement was drawn up about steps to be taken to prevent non-butchers using their dining room, which included relocking the offending door. That upset the freezer workers, who decided to go on strike until the door was unlocked. There was no discussion with either the company or the union on the matter. Having made their decision, they simply walked out. Later, Jim Barnes learned that freezer workers were in the habit of using the butcher's dining room as an access way to their own facilities. The company had, of course, provided an alternative entrance, but that was marginally further walking distance. A shared meeting of all workers the next day supported the stand taken by the freezer workers, and over the weekend, a series of meetings resulted in the Disputes Committee Chairman, Aubrey Begg, being asked to make a decision. He, in turn, upheld the authority of the union officials to make agreements with the company, thereby deciding in favour of the slaughtermen. Work started on Monday 14th of February, with six chains in full production, but ended at 3pm, 
when freezer workers went home, saying they would not return until the door was unlocked. The following day, another shed meeting was held, and on a secret ballot, the men decided to uphold Begg's decision, and work resumed at 2pm that day. In the meantime, the company had lost 80,000 head of stock, and workers about $150,000 in wages over one door. To cap it all off, no sooner had work started than there was a telephone call to say there was a bomb on the slaughter board. This meant evacuating the works, while management, including Bill Pottinger, Ray Dunn, and supervisors, fruitlessly searched for any bomb-like object or container. And you're back to me talking again. All that talking is making me tempted to rely on Alex again. To translate that into modern English, Butchers were annoyed that other people who worked in the freezer section used their dining room. The butchers said that their things were being stolen by the freezing guys walking through the area and they demanded the door to the room be kept locked. They said they'd go on strike if the door was not locked. The freezer workers said they'd go on strike if the door was locked. They walked through that room to get to where they wanted to go. One side would strike no matter what happened with the door. The door ended up being locked and the freezing workers went on strike. As a cut above says, the freezer workers had another way to get to where they wanted to go without going through the locked door, but they said it was longer that way and they wouldn't do it. The whole freezing works couldn't work properly without all workers, and in the end they lost 80,000 head of stock. I think that means those animals would be sent out of Southland to another place to be killed so that Alliance Freezing Works didn't get paid for killing those animals since they didn't do it. Someone else would have. And all the workers were not working, so they would have lost about $150,000 in lost wages. I don't know what that works out to be in today's money, but I've been told around that time you could buy a house for twenty grand or so. $20,000 bought a house, and $150,000 didn't get paid out to workers because they didn't do their work. All over one door. I've got a special invited guest to appear on this episode, my dad, who worked for a long time at a local freezing works, slaughtering lambs. His job was to open up the sheep around the back legs. Uh, my name's Daniel Wyatt. I started out the freezing works in about 1976. I got a job there that through um, my father's, uh, or an introduction of father, um, introduced us to Charlie Calvert, who is the personnel officer there. I started on the, the slaughter board on what they called the gut trays that uh, they're just sort of um, sorting out things like taking the intestines off the uh, off the gut, um, the spleen, they all went down different chutes. There was four guys working on the gut trays, um, one was just ripping the fat off that sort of, and they all went down to, to be processed um, down below. Uh, probably worked just as a like a labour on the slaughter board for, I think it was only about one season, and then I um, uh, applied to be go on the um, uh, learner butchers or slaughterman's um, chain, which did the next year. And because I'm uh, left-handed, they put us on um, uh, flanking, uh, which you need to be able to do a left flank, and then um, another guy will do the right flank. Uh, Flanking is opening up the um, sort of the round the hind legs, preparing it for the um, the pelters who pull the um, the pelts off. When we um, learned flanking, we were told that we were going to be the last learners' chain because down in the uh, down in the store down below there was 
um, pelting machines. Uh, pelting machines didn't come in till about nor in say nineteen not into the eighties. Um, can't remember the actual date, but um, were, yeah, but uh, back to like flanking them. And once I learnt flanking and um, ripping down, which is opening up the uh, the gut from the um, the rear rear le uh, legs right down to the bottom, and then the the flankers sort of uh, uh, start uh, next to that, and then um, the pelt is basically just ripping the pelt off. There was doing that, you had to keep clean knives. That sort of because once you're um, uh, there was opportunity for you to um, get dirt on the skin with the pelt being still there um, and there was lots of um, hassles that with boardwalkers that that um, controlled the um, controlled each chain and they they looked after um, there's three to four boardwalker well there's one main boardwalker but there's ones um, uh, other guys did all the legging tables which cut off the hocks that sort of when they're up on all fours um, but where where we were that sort of a, it's um, when we rip them down is um, when they're on on just on their hind legs with the um, gambits um, and hooks that through their back legs um, it was a all also work out at the works is very monotonous um, and repetitious that sort of most jobs you're standing in the one spot, sort of, whereas pelting that you're actually walking uh, probably about um, up to about three to four meters, uh, doing one one lamb per minute. The chain speeds that are ooh, seven seven point seven point eight lambs go past one point in a minute, and uh, sheep were um, being that much bigger were um, a lot slower at about um, oh, 6.4 that's coming past in a minute and they're sort of um, a lot bigger and you had when you had um, like rams that that um, were real massive they, they'd leave a gap a, a ram and a gap and two guys instead of trying to um, pelt down one side of the um, or punch down one side of the pelt to to rip it off. Uh, you just rip the pelt off, and because the the gambit that slides along the chain, that's um, that the uh, the rams are on. Quite often you broke the um, broke the gambit and sort of pulled the uh, the ram onto the ground, and it was um, it was bloody heavier. That's sort of trying to trying to put the um, the ram back up, and the, they'd send an, a gap along. And uh, they'd, you'd try and put the um, the ram back up. All right. The um, what I got wrong there was the the skid is um, slides along on the uh, the chain, and um, it has the gambit, which is a, is like a W that goes through through between the feet, and the the, um, the skid is in the middle of the W, to, and it, it's balanced by the um, uh, the um, the way the legs are, because the legs are evenly posi positioned. If they're quite often, um, sometimes the the legs are, for some reason, have um, or oh, malformed that, and one shorter than the other, it can quite often cause the them to 
come off uh, a lot easier and so, uh, so it's a lot more hassles but after the pelting they go through a wash and they're they're given um, wash sort of all over at the stage that they're um, still got all the gut in after they then they go to the um, the gut what guys call gutties that and they um, uh, you know uh, one of them rings it which is cuts the um, the arsehole out and it drops down inside and the next guy slits the um, from the hind you know sort of down down the front which is the, the normal opening um, and once he's done that there's um, a guy or pull the um, uh, the gut out and um, and it, it, it just gets dropped on or oh, sorry the, in, in between that there's the um, guy with a chopper which is a big sort of uh, like it's a gun with a, a scissor action that um, is it's actually a brisket cutter and cuts the brisket which is the um, say the chest cavity and the the gutties just pull everything out and drop them onto the gut trays which they're then inspected by meat inspectors so anything that's um, got cysts or any um, anything that shouldn't be there gets um, chucked out or um, that's the gutties on the well sorry that's the meat inspectors on the gut trays there's one up on a two of them up on a stand that actually check the um, the carcass and they've got a array of tags that they put on for anything that's wrong with it and it goes on goes down onto a detain rail where the um, uh, where there's people that um, laborers that there that um, cut whatever the the um, uh, disease or um, or fault is off or it might be just dirty for some reason there's some dirt got on the skin and then there's a meat inspector down there that checks it again and um, checks yeah checks it again um, to make sure that it's in perfect condition to go out onto the cool floor uh, there's just before the the detain roll there's the the meat graders that that grade meat into different um, uh, according to weight and they put the tags on them and then they go out to cool floor which they stay there that for overnight and then they get um, sent to the um, or the to the freezers uh, the chains that sort of uh, each chain that kills 3200 a day um, and um, when I was there and sort of um, all right we're, we're we're back on here that sort of we've just had a real doozy of an earthquake it's the the best one I've ever had uh, I thought uh, Jasper the cat was rocking my chair and um, Jordan thought I was kicking the back of the couch uh, but then the um, the chandelier started uh, rolling around and it went on for two to three minutes at least and we had to go around the house that and um, uh, grab a hold of the chandeliers and stop them swinging nothing that sort of didn't hear any crashes in the the night um, the wee keg that I've got up on top of the sideboard started rolling along because it's just a wee keg it's not um, secured anyway um, but anyway back to the about the freezing racks um, each uh, we started normally at five to eight in the morning and the the first run finished about uh, ten 10 to 10 and then we'd go to about 10 to 12 
uh, and then we'd uh, you know finish for dinner at ten twelve, start again at about five to one, which would go to about five to three, and then we'd be all killed up about twenty five past four um, at night, and I could be um, down in the, locker, in the locker room, had a share, and be home in Invercargill, that's by, um, which was 10 miles away, sort of in um, Glen Armand Crescent by about just after five. Um, the season that sort of about the works that normally start anywhere from after Labor Weekend, 20, that's 24th of October, and will go through and they'll bring in a couple of chains at a time of that, depending on the stock. Uh, and they'd build up to the six chains, and in later years, when I, or in sort of the mid 80s, that they had uh, seven chains. At this stage, they only had day shift. Uh, and the, the season would go through, right through till um, uh, somewhere end of May into June, that they'd start laying off chains, and sort of depending on stock of that, this year of that. Um, being 2009, I think the the last chains uh, finished about a um, couple of weeks ago. Um, freezing works uh, enjoyed the freezing works while well there. The camaraderie of that is is really good. Um, I still have guys, even though I've been away from the works for 22 years, they still have guys come in and want to know where Stretch is at the shop. Uh, which was my name at the um, the Freezing Works. I played Freezing Works rugby out there, which um, we played in the, uh, in February. Um, being five works that sort of that was Ocean Beach Alliance, Makariwa, uh, Matara, and Finnegan. Um, we we all played a game each, and the top two in the A and the B grades that sort of played off at. Um, Rugby Park on the first first Sunday in March. Um, out the works that um, sort of being there's a real mixture of people out the the works that and um, the sort of uh, all different sort of trades um, sort of people that went out there to um, get money in that during the season. You had a real mix of um, some. Uh, of guys that sort of some some quite rough sort of guys and some um, of the other persuasion uh, and with head of a, uh, the union that which often had union meetings and those often um, uh, ended up in having strikes that sort of one particular one we called the six million dollar door because it was uh, through our dining room um, we had um, the laborers used to walk straight through and to get to their uh, locker room and their dining room. They had at least two other ways of getting there, but uh, they used to walk through and some of them used to um, nick things off our tables. And um, it just after quite a while of um, trying to, you know, uh, them being watched and everything else and things were still going missing, we blocked the door off. Um, we said that if the, the door got opened, we wouldn't uh, work. And the labourers said if it didn't get opened, they wouldn't work. So it was a stalemate. And I think we probably had Walter Grill, uh, Grills, who's a um, industrial mediator, come in. But it, um, 
I think in the end um, we got the the door was left um, shut but we called it six million dollar door because it was probably about the amount of money that was or a lot of money was lost um, due to the um, dispute often at the works that the um, the companies that sort of um, we knew just about you could say generated strikes that because um, the uh, boats weren't coming into bluff to take away the meat and so all the freezers were full so they that um, it ended up sort of different times when we knew this we endeavored not to take the bait and sort of go out but being sort of sort of um, a real mixture of, um, of or cross cross section of society that we um, uh, yeah cross section of society that uh, was a show of hands and quite often if if we'd just been paid to that sort of um, the guys had you'd possibly get someone up um, Ted Clifford was a noted um, uh, guy, uh, older guy of that at the time and he had uh, put a motion um, like he did one time he says I'll put a motion that um, we go home and protest today and come back tomorrow and of course having just um, had a nice big um, paycheck of that sort of or it was normally paid in cash that you could have it um, a lot of people used to get money um, put directly into bank accounts and just a, a fraction of their money that's sort of given in hand uh, we'd go home and um, protest and come back tomorrow which um, everyone had probably or a lot of people would just head to the pub uh, it was with uh, guys that sort of in um, there was get a lot of gambling at the works um, and it was quite often uh, guys would go over to the the camp huts there's the, the, the single men's quarters and there could be card schools that in people would lose pay packets overnight and the, there were a few people, um, a few wives that were um, uh, of a couple of the notorious sort of guys that were um, not very good at playing cards that had lose the money. Uh, they ended up waiting at the gate on occasions that for um, the husbands to come and they would take the money off the husbands so that um, at least they'd, they'd have some money. I'm pretty happy he decided to come on my podcast and talk about working in the slaughterhouse. Thine is the task of blood. Discharge thy task with mercy. Let thy victim feel no pain. Let sudden blow bring death, such death as thou thyself would ask for. The Slaughterman's Creed. I've prepared a clip from a BBC documentary, Slaughterhouse, A Task of Blood to Play. I found Slaughterhouse on Veg TV, which you can find at veg-tv.info. You can probably find it by searching for Veg TV. It's in my notes. I downloaded the 500 megabyte clip, which put me over my bandwidth cap for this month, but it's worth it. Slaughterhouse is a very personal documentary. It has actual characters in the different slaughtermen. Most are 20-something-year-old guys with awful English smiles. The crooked and broken off teeth were what upset me the most in this documentary. If you have the time, I highly recommend downloading Slaughterhouse, A Task of Blood. Somebody once said that if slaughterhouses had glass walls, everyone would be a vegetarian. Which is another way of saying that if we knew where our meat came from, we wouldn't want it. I'm not so sure about that. 
But let's put the theory to the test. Think of this film as your window onto a slaughterhouse. And when it's over, ask yourself, do I feel like eating meat again? In our increasingly sanitised world, we don't like to dwell too much on the fact that hundreds of thousands of animals die every day in British slaughterhouses. But they do, and this film is about that process. It's also about the men who are an essential part of the process, the men with the sharp knives, the killers and cutters. Oldham in Greater Manchester. This used to be a cotton town, and the skyline was punctuated by dozens of factory chimneys. But the cotton has disappeared, along with most of the other industry. In fact, there's not much of anything being produced in these old industrial towns of the northwest. The habitat of the working class male has been eroded. But you can still find him in abattoirs, supplying food for a nation of carnivores. Some people choose the vegetarian option, but 95% of us are flesh eaters. We love our lamb chops and roast beef and sausages, and someone has to spill the blood. When you're a kid, you want to be a footballer like David Beckham, or you want to be, I don't know, a rocket scientist or everything else, but I want to be a slaughterman like my dad. Because when I was little, my mum used to take me down to the factory, meet him when he used to work there. And I used to look around the corner and see everybody carrying dead carcasses, blood over their aprons and everything else. And I was like, oh, that looks pretty interesting. The combination of electric current and sharp knife means that the animals die quickly. I kill animals for a living all day, every day. And I really like the job. You can get away with murder every day and not get arrested for it, which it sounds pretty sick, but it's not. And you just get your satisfaction out of what you do. And like some people might think I'm sick about doing what I do, but they don't think I'm sick when it's on their plate on a Sunday. It doesn't really bother me one bit. I don't look at a pig and go, oh, this is really cute, I can't kill it. I just look at it and like, oh, it's a pig, it's got to die, kill it. Get all this fucking mess cleaned up now. What a fucking pay you to do, not fucking yap. I've got cameras here, get on with it. Jump in this day. Get it cleaned up. Yeah, sort of a cleaner down today. Fucking stood talking, the pervy, yeah? Yeah, what a job are you doing? Most manufacturing takes place on an assembly line, but the manufacture of meat takes place on a disassembly line. The raw material arrives whole and healthy and is gradually taken to pieces. Everyone has their own particular job. The meeting and greeting of the animals is done by Eddie, who then passes them into the care of the slaughterman. Slaughtermen do the killing, the evisceration, and the skinning. Meanwhile, the cleaners are hard at it. Mopping up the blood, picking up guts, and helping to make the process run smoothly. Once the animal has been turned into a lifeless, skinless, gutless carcass, it is stored in a fridge until the boners and the humpers take over. 
cutting up the meat and packing it into wagons. None of these jobs is particularly well paid, and once you factor in the unsocial hours, the mess and the stench, I was left wondering why anyone would choose to work in an abattoir. People think, yeah, that when I say to them, what do you do as your swordsman, they say, does a, do they come in, are they already dead when they come in? They don't, they don't think that they're already alive when they come here, you know what I mean? They think they're already dead. So no, they're alive when they come in here. So it is the killing of animals and the slaughter of animals. You either take to it or you don't take to it. I mean, some people have come for the job, oh, I want a job, I want a job, I'll do anything, I'll do anything. You explain to them what's involved, oh, it won't bother me, I'll get used to it, and they don't last a day. Some don't, I've known some not to last an hour. They can't cope with the thought of seeing what goes on, an animal being slaughtered, blood, guts, things hanging out, which is what you're going to get when you open something up. It was a bit weird at first when I first started. When you see a beast walking about now, it's, well, before I come out, it's in the field just wandering around. And then you see them like, hung up like, and it's got no head and no front feet. And, and as you look round, you can just see it getting less and less in stages. And when you first start, it's, it is, it's quite, quite mad. Killing the animals is one thing. Cleaning up the mess is another. Like any other industrial process, the production of meat has unwanted byproducts, most of which are slimy and smelly. Most people would think this job is like really the worst job in the world to do, but it's not that hard. And if you can cope with all the mess of the guts and the blood and the feces, you're all right. You need a strong stomach, I think. But it's not that bad, really. The work isn't terribly hard. It's just annoying, boring and you feel unrewarded at the end of the week. There's a right way and a wrong way to kill a pig. It's part of Brian's job to teach the young men how to put the knife in properly. Once Taylor became 18, he was eligible to go into the killing pen and receive instruction in the art of slaughter. To be awarded a license to kill, Taylor has to perfect his throat cutting technique. I've always been a big animal lover. I've grown up with pets and uh, I had dogs at home and etc, uh, etc. Et so on a personal level, I, I have always liked animals. Uh, on a religious level, which is again also on a personal value system, uh, I value life with its animal life, with its human life, uh, irrespective of religion or whatever. It's, it's just life is life. Life is something very special. When it comes to the slaughtering side of it, just to kill an animal for the sake of killing it, no. Very much against that. Comes to eating, again from the religious perspective, human beings are on a higher level, a higher plane of existence than animals are. And uh, should we choose to eat meat, we have to slaughter it in sort of sensitivity to being aware of the fact you are taking a life. This is a life of Daisy. Daisy was a cow in the field, just minding her own business, when some cruel bastard came and shot her in the head. Oh my God! Someone killed Daisy! I've seen, on, unfortunately, on a couple of occasions where animals have been mistreated. And uh, it's upset me very much. And I've gone to one of the chapters and said, you know, what did you do that for? 
looks to me like I'm crazy. You know, what do you care? It's going to do with you. It's going to die just now or whatever. And it's just wrong, isn't it? Morally wrong. You're going to kill them anyway, aren't you? So you don't need to be cruel to them. Pounce like a tiger. Execute. <laughs> this is a fun part. No soul, no heart, just uh, physical murdering abilities. Didn't even see it coming. Don't want to hurt myself. You know, I'm not the sort of person that goes home at night and slashes up my arm and sticks things up here. It's just experiment, you know what I mean? If you look carefully, you can see their souls floating out the door. Flipping up through that hallway. Flowing up and up and out. That's why we've got the hole there so they can escape. Ooh. It's not unusual for immigrants to end up doing the jobs that are dirty, difficult or low paid. The kind of jobs that you might find in an abattoir, for example. After listening to the attitudes of the people who work here, I wasn't surprised that there were no Asian workers. The way we have got around people ducking work, uh, the younger people today, we didn't want to do this, but we have had to get foreign staff on board, and we have took some Polish lads working. We find them top class, good timekeeping, pleasant, uh, nothing's too much trouble. The English young men just come in and they want to know what time they're going home before they get here. You know, they just come here and they want to work and get a fair day's pay for a good day's work, which how it should be. The humpers hump, the salesmen sell, the drivers deliver and the cleaners mop up. But the slaughtermen, well, they carry sharp knives and stick them into animals. It's not exactly open-heart surgery, but they do need a certain amount of manual dexterity. This job's very skillful. You, you see people say, oh, I could do that, because the men who do it make it look easy. People think, oh, that looks dead easy, I'll have a go at that. And all the slaughtermen will do the same, yeah, you can have a go, go on, and let them have a go and then laugh at them. I stabbed myself in the, in the stomach once, stabbed myself in the arm a few times, Cut a few fingers. I know people who've cut fingers off, but nothing really serious. The sermon would have you think that it's just like the most hardest job in the world, world to learn and only the most skilled can do it, but it's not. Basically, it's just being shown what to do, isn't it? Once you've, it's like riding a bike, I suppose. Once you learn, you never forget. Remember the theory about glass walls and everyone turning vegetarian? Well, you've had a good look. What will you be eating in the future? Meat and two veg? Or just the two veg? I liked hearing what the workers think, even if I don't agree with how the animals are treated by the slaughtermen. It was interesting to hear one of the Jewish slaughterers being concerned about the animal's well-being, and that he even considered himself to be an animal lover. I don't know how he can say that and work at the slaughterhouse. Remember he said that humans are a higher order, we are above animals, so we have the right to kill them, according to him. I don't agree with that at all. I guess it's a matter of perception that a slaughterer could think animals are great, but that we had to eat them. And because we are smarter when it comes to making iPods, we have the right to kill cows. 
I liked the vegetarian message at the start and finish of Slaughterhouse, A Task of Blood. I think it makes a compelling point. Who would want to eat meat after seeing inside an abattoir? Not me, that's for sure. However, this clip... What will you be eating in the future? Meat and two veg? Or just the two veg? Is a little disheartening if you read into it like I did. I get the point of, okay, I'm going to leave off the meat, but it's not like you have to eat less if you're a vegetarian or vegan, taking off a huge steak and being left with just the steamed carrots and mashed potato on the side, now your main course. Have three vegetables on your plate. For the price of the corpse, you could buy a much larger amount of vegan food. You could have chocolate for dessert afterwards. Being vegan has nothing to do with suffering through mealtimes. I think it's reasonable to think that people who eat meat don't want to see how it's made, so to speak, how the animals are kept, treated, hacked to bits. I like bringing that up. Anytime someone says that, you're less of a man now you're vegan, I can pull out my iPhone and show them earthlings on it. I'm quite used to gory slaughterhouse footage now. I'd be willing to bet that the average meat-eating person would be more upset to see how meat is made than I am. There's a good vegetarian message to be learnt when you've seen inside of an abattoir. You see the truth, how things really are. I'd like to play a clip from Compassionate Cooks. I love Colleen's podcast where she talks about being vegan and cooking. If you search on iTunes for Compassionate Cooks, it will show up. I'll have a link to her website, compassionatecooks.com, in my notes as well. Let's look at the suggestion of some writers, such as Carol Adams, that we perceive meat eaters as blocked vegetarians. The idea is that instead of perceiving meat eaters as just that, we perceive meat eaters as blocked vegetarians. Now, I realize at the sound of that phrase, some of you, possibly some of you who are not vegan yet, may think that it sounds arrogant, but just stick with me here. I really like this notion because of what I just said, because I do believe that to experience this cognitive dissonance is to be blocked. And because I've seen so many people have such powerful moments of awakening regarding our treatment of animals that indicates to me that the compassion, the connection, the truth was there all along, but it was blocked, as it were, by all the speciesist messaging that we get from day one that keeps us numb and unaware. I believe that when we learn about what happens to animals and then experience this profound awakening, it's almost like you aren't learning something new as much as you're having something revealed to you that was always already there. Does that make sense? It's like it's all there inside of us, but it's covered up, it's veiled, it's blocked. I mean, the specifics of the animal torture and abuse may not be there. You may not have known that before, but the sense that something is very wrong when we eat animals and that we're part of it is what's always lingering beneath the surface. And you're going to love this. The word reveal means just that. It means to uncover. If you break this word down, it comes from the Latin word meaning revelare. Re, R-E in revelare. R-E means the opposite of. And velare means to cover or to veil. So to reveal something, you literally lift the veil. You uncover what's underneath it. I love that.
So that's why I really like the idea of perceiving meat eaters as blocked vegetarians or not yet vegetarians because of this. Most people put their hands over their ears and close their eyes and don't want to see or hear about the way the animals suffer who are raised and killed for human consumption. In fact, they don't even want to hear the words kill or blood or carcass or corpse, vein, slaughter, dead flesh, secretion, etc. And they arrange their lives neatly in such a way that they never have to confront these things. Many of their friends are meat eaters, their neighbors are meat eaters, and they take great pride in the steaks they can cook and the fish they can grill. The cooking shows they watch never upset their comfort level. And as if there aren't enough animals cooking in pots and pans on those shows, the commercials for these shows advertise even more carnage. The supermarkets they shop in prominently display the bodies of dead animals, but call them such desensitized, de-animalized names as poultry, pork, steak, beef, bacon, chuck, ground round, ham, tenderloin, sausage, and T-bone. The billboards they see when they drive home encourage them to buy more of these body parts, and the radio commercials that play instill this idea even more, just in case they miss the last billboard. The doctor they go to tells them they need meat for protein, though the doctor is himself on cholesterol-lowering medication, and the circus they take their kids to on the weekends serves up juicy hamburgers and ketchup-laced hot dogs. And when the kids ask what a hot dog is made with, they say pork. And if the kid figures out it's actually an animal, they tell them, yes, but animals were made for humans. That's the way of the food chain. And besides, just read the Bible. It says it right there in black and white. And then, as they're walking out of the circus, promising the kids they'll take them to the zoo next weekend, they see an activist wearing a Be Kind to Animals, Don't Eat Them shirt, handing out leaflets about the ethical considerations of supporting animal-based circuses. <laughs> How rude. How in your face. Why do they have to impose their beliefs on other people? God. They return home, having got through another day of ignorant bliss, shielded from the discomfort of having to look at their own role in the suffering of others, sheltered in their comfort zone of indignant indifference, comforted by the familiar tastes, sounds, and sights of animal exploitation, utterly unaware how carefully crafted all of this is, not thinking for just one moment that every single message they receive about meat, circus animals, zoo animals, or whatever everyday activity they engage in that uses and abuses and exploits animals, not for one moment do they think that those people are imposing their beliefs on them, not for a moment. Just because the belief that says animals are here for us to use as food as research tools and clothing and entertainment is widespread and pervasive, it doesn't mean it's fact. It's still a set of beliefs that happens to be perpetuated by the status quo, sold to them by the very industries that profit by this belief. But not for a moment do most people question the motives of the messengers of the animal exploitation industries. Unless, Unless a tiny crack appears, unless a tiny light starts to reveal itself underneath the veil, a crack so tiny but so powerful that it threatens the very foundation of their belief system, a crack so powerful that they know it must be sealed, corrected, removed as swiftly and as abruptly as possible. They know that if they let this crack grow, 
hell, they know that if they even acknowledge this crack, tiny though it is, it will rock their world. That tiny little crack is the voice of truth. And it comes in many forms. It might be as overt as a person spending several hours on a weekend night handing out leaflets about veganism. But it's most likely to be as seemingly innocuous as a word like corpse instead of meat or pig instead of pork. It might be as small as seeing a steer grazing in a pasture and looking into his eyes and seeing life. You never know what it's going to take, but I can assure you that no matter how much we try to shield ourselves from the truth, it has a way of sneaking up on us. It has a way of piercing through our veil of conscious ignorance, forcing us to confront what we try so desperately to avoid. That's why vegans get hushed and shushed and silenced. That's why many people want us to shut up and hide away and stop telling the truth. And this is why we can't. It's the truth that people are afraid of. And I believe that people resist hearing about what happens to the animals, not simply because they think it will be too painful for them or because their stomachs are too queasy. No, they don't want to hear the truth or see the truth because they know it's the truth that will make them want to change. It's the truth they're afraid of because they know it will rock their world and challenge everything they believed before. They will be exposed. They will be vulnerable. They'll be unprotected. It's not that they're insensitive to animal suffering. It's that they're so sensitive to it that makes them close their eyes and their hearts. The very idea that animals suffer because of them is so anathema to them. It's so difficult to confront that it's easier not to go there at all. And in the face of truth, in the face of this truth, some people get it immediately. They throw off their veil willingly, reveling not in the fear of being vulnerable or exposed, but rather in the joy of being free and aware. They see it. They get it. They embrace it, despite the pain of this awareness. Thank you very much for the work you do, Colleen. I've donated some money towards the running costs of your podcast. My friend Sam is a young New Zealand vegan. It's always good to find other vegans in New Zealand, especially guys. It breaks down any perceptions that only women are vegan. I'd like to mention Sam's new podcast, NZ Vegan Teen. You can find it on iTunes by searching NZ Vegan Teen. Sam has many websites up. I first came across his anti-dairy site. Here's a clip Sam sent me to play on this episode. Hi, I'm Sam. I'm 13 years old. I do a radio show on animal rights. I run a t-shirt design company with vegan and animal rights t-shirts. And I run a New Zealand anti-dairy website. I've been vegetarian for two years and and vegan for one year. Uh, I decided not to eat meat after I read a book by Robert Muchmore. It had this section on battery farming. And it was a fiction book, so at first I didn't realise that battery farming was true. I thought, oh yeah, it's a good story. I'm sure that doesn't happen in real life, though. So I looked it up, found out it did happen, but at the time I was still in denial. I thought, nah, that happens in America, not in New Zealand. So I looked it up some more, and I came across Safe's website, and I found out that battery farming happens all over the world, including New Zealand. And I was absolutely disgusted that I had been supporting that uh, through my money, so as soon as I found out about that, I stopped eating battery farmed eggs. I did a little bit of research 
and um, found out about other types of factory farming, like uh, broil farms and pig factory farms. After that, I decided that I wouldn't eat any factory farmed animal products. So at the time, I was only eating free-range meat. Uh, but then I thought about it a little bit more, and I thought, regardless of how they were treated, you're killing animals for the sake of your taste. And the fact that these animals suffer and feel pain, and that they're smart as three-year-old children, pigs are smart as three-year-old kids, it just didn't seem right to me. So I went vegetarian, and then vegan a year after that, as soon as I found out about the cruelty behind the dairy industry, how a cow to produce milk, she has to become pregnant and her baby is taken away from her and sent to slaughterhouses, how she'll suffer from painful diseases such as mastitis, and how she too will be killed before she even reaches half of her natural lifespan. So yeah, that's pretty much why I'm vegan. Um, I do my radio show just as a way of spreading the vegan message. I started just a few months after I went vegetarian. Before I was vegetarian, I was hosting a music show with my friend, and because of that, I was I already sort of knew what I was doing with uh, basically radio, so I decided that radio would be a really great way to get the message out about animal rights. And I, a few months after I was vegan, I think I've been running the website for three or four months. So I, I decided to start it because there is currently, I don't think there's any other New Zealand anti-dairy website that's just specifically about New Zealand dairy. And I think a lot of people, they just don't know the suffering that dairy causes. I mean, if I had known the suffering that dairy causes, I would have gone vegan a lot sooner than I had because the only thing that I knew was wrong with dairy was just two lines that were mentioned in some animal rights newsletters that I received. There wasn't any detailed information that I could make an informed decision on. Um, so I want to make this website so that people can see for themselves what happens to animals and how the dairy industry negatively affects not only the animals but also your health and the environment. I also do a t-shirt design company business called Soul Sleeves. Basically I make vegan and animal rights shirts. It's To me that's just another one of my activism. I do make money out of it. But I wanted a way that I could combine making money with my activism, so I decided to do animal rights t-shirts. Um, hi, I'm Sam Tucker. I'm 13 years old. I've been vegan since I was 12 and vegetarian a year before that. And I think that you should be vegan too because it's great for the animals. I mean, these animals currently are living under filthy conditions in factory farms. Millions of pigs and chickens can't even turn around. They're just living in their own crap, just basically waiting to die. And death is definitely no better than their living conditions because most animals are hung upside down by their legs and have their throats slit while they're still conscious. And I don't think that you can justify that but just by saying that tastes good. I think that morally, the pain and suffering that the animals cause should outweigh the taste of their flesh and their eggs or their milk or whatever. As well as benefiting the animals of being vegan, 
greatly benefits the environment and your health. Simply switching from a meat-based diet to a vegan diet actually is better for the environment than switching from an SUV to a hybrid car. And as far as your health is concerned, vegetarians have half the chance of getting cancer, half the chance of getting strokes, heart disease, and much less chance of getting asthma, diabetes, and many other diseases such as that. You can find Sam on iTunes by searching for NZ Vegan Teen. Also, nzvegan-teen.blogspot.com is one of Sam's pages. nzvegan-teen.blogspot.com. Howard Lyman is a former American cattle rancher, a cow farmer in New Zealand terms, who decided to be vegan. Howard used modern chemicals on his farm in 1979. He was diagnosed with a tumour on his spine. He was told he could be paralysed from the tumour. He vowed to switch to non-chemical methods of farming if he beat the cancer. He survived the operation to remove the tumour and changed his farm into an organic operation. Around 1990, Howard Lyman faced health problems. He became vegetarian and found his health improved. He started looking into mad cow disease, which was affecting Great Britain. In 1996, Howard appeared on Oprah Winfrey's show. He made comments that offended the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. He basically said, Meat is bad for you. Bad things are fed to cows. Ground up roadkill. Pets have been put to sleep, etc. Cows don't naturally eat meat. It's wrong. Oprah agreed. Shocked by what she heard, she said she would never eat hamburgers again. The Beef Association was very mad about that. It was a bit like the recent New Zealand pork scandal, my term, with the pork board denying that New Zealand pigs are badly treated in factory farming conditions. The Beef Association was hurt by the drop in sales. When people find out how meat is brought to their supermarket, they often buy less, at least temporarily. Both Lyman and Oprah were sued. They eventually won the trial. In time, Howard became vegan. I have a clip of Howard from one of his speeches me on the stage to the left of me mother whose granddaughter is dying of the human form of mad cow disease in England to the right of me a guy from the National Cattlemen's Beef Association points at me and says here's a man who believes within 10 years we could have a disease that would make AIDS look like the common cold and I said absolutely and she said that's a strong statement I said Oprah we have 100,000 cows a year, fine at night, dead in the morning. We round them up, grind them up, turn them into feed, feed them back to other cows. We go out and collect roadkill, deer, elk, possum, raccoons, scrape them up off of the street, grind them up, feed them back to cows. And then we take pets, city of Los Angeles, 200 tons of pets full of chemicals that were used to kill them. 200 tons a month are ground up, turned into feed, and fed back to our food animals. This time, Oprah's eyes are as big as saucers. I know that I've got her. She turns around and looks at the guy from the National Cattlemen's Beef Association and says, Dr. Weber, are we feeding cows to cows? I never knew what he had to say. He said, well, you know, there's a limited amount of that going on. I believe that about 95% of the cattle fed in factory feedlots are eating the remains of other animals. 
And the next thing out of Oprah's mouth, damn it, gets us sued. Oprah says, that just stops me cold. I will never again eat a burger. Now she didn't say, I think the meat's infected. She didn't say to the millions of viewers, you shouldn't eat them. She just said, that stops me cold. I will never again eat a burger. Now, I knew when I went on that show that 13 states had a thing called the Food Disparagement Law. The Food Disparagement Law says that it's against the law to say something you know to be false about a perishable commodity. I didn't say anything I thought to be false. I told the truth. Well, we were taping the show. Took about two hours when we got done taping the show. I walked up to Oprah and I said to her, I said, hey, Oprah, give me 10 minutes. I'll get you off of chicken. Oprah looked at me and said, only one animal a day. <laughs> we spent six years, hundreds of thousands of dollars of my money defending right to tell the truth. At the end of six years, the judge finally threw out the case with prejudice, which meant the jury or the plaintiffs could not refile the case, that the statute of limitations had run out. So at the end of six years and hundreds of thousands of dollars were finally vindicated for standing up and telling the truth. How many of the jurors became vegetarians? You know, it's an amazing thing. We had pictures of the dogs and cats that were going into the rendering process to be ground up that still had the collars on. And the cattlemen fought tooth and nail that we would not be able to show those pictures to the jury. The minute we showed those pictures to the jury, the trial was over. They realized that the idea of euthanizing pets, grinding them up, turning them into feed, and feeding them to the animals we're eating, that the chemicals that were used to kill them were not denatured in the rendering process. All of a sudden, they looked at it and said, you know, we're not vegetarians. But we realize that what's happening in the industry today is absolutely, totally wrong. I'm near the end of this episode, so I'd like to thank you for listening now. If you want to contact me, even just to say you listened, send an email to jwontdart at gmail.com, jwontdart at gmail.com. I'd appreciate it. My outro will be the song Mises Murder, sung live by the Smiths. I heard it and rushed off to buy it on iTunes. I've noticed that iTunes doesn't show my earlier podcast episodes. I have the full set of links to each and every episode on my blog page jwontdart.blogspot.com so you can download every one of my episodes. I'd like to put forth a message to anyone who eats meat and who has listened to this episode. Go and see what the inside of a meat factory looks like, no matter what it's called, an abattoir, a slaughterhouse, or the freezing works. It's as simple as typing in slaughterhouse or something similar into Google Images. There's no cost or inconvenience to you. Have a look and ask yourself, could I work here? Could I cut these animals' throats, watching liters of blood come out? 
while they hang upside down? Could I stand the smell of blood, guts, animal waste? If you think these places are awful to see, well, why would you pay money for them to stay in business? Why would you want to touch what comes from them, if even the sight is upsetting, the thought is upsetting, the sounds are upsetting, the smell is upsetting, why would you want to eat it? This beautiful creature must die, a death for no reason, and death for no reason is murder. And the flesh she so fancifully fry, is not succulent, tasty, or kind, it's death for no reason, and death for no reason is murder. Kitchen aromas aren't very homely, it's not comforting, cheery, or kind, it's sizzling blood, and the unholy stench of murder. It's not natural, normal, or kind, the flesh you so fancifully fry, the meat in your mouth, as you savour the flavour of murder. Have a super happy day. Bye. could be human crime. Closer.